Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. In today's episode, the story takes an abrupt turn and inserts a brief narrative about Judah before returning to the Joseph narrative. Again, situations like these have caused scholars to speculate about the documentary hypothesis, but one of our goals at TMTS is to encourage the listener to hear the Bible as a coherent piece of literature. Instead of just assuming that this is a product of poor or lazy writing, let us put in the effort to view this story functionally within the pericope of not only Joseph's narrative, but the overarching biblical narrative. So without further ado, let's continue on with the story. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Oman. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. So after the previous episode with Joseph being forced out of the family tribe, Judah leaves on his own accord. The text doesn't give us an explicit reason for his leaving, so we can't speculate on motive. But what we can say is that this is highly unusual for an ancient tribal society, and bad news as far as the Bible is concerned. In our modern context, it doesn't seem too strange, as it is expected for people to leave their family households after a certain age and start their own lives and their own families. Failure to do so within a given time frame is generally seen as a failure, but not so in ancient cultures. You stayed within the family tribe, still under the household of the patriarch, who in this case would be Jacob. Many households around the world, particularly in the East, still operate in this manner. So Judah's leaving is quite unusual. We can also look back at the previous stories just to highlight the significance of this. Even Abram, when he was first called to leave Mesopotamia, took his father and his brothers and their families with him. Interestingly, too, Isaac doesn't even leave the household when Abraham sends his servant to Mesopotamia to get a wife for him. This cycle ends with Jacob being urged to leave by Rebekah, and we know how that went for him and his uncle Laban. So let that set an ominous tone for Judah's abrupt deflection from the family Shabet, the tribe. Yeah, and it could also be a simple foreshadowing of the separated kingdoms of Judah and Israel later in Scripture, and we'll talk more on this as we continue through the chapter. The text constantly and consistently ridicules its original audience by ridiculing their forefathers. It's a tried-and-true method of Scripture, and it is effective. The problem, of course, is when we, us moderners, ignore it. So moving on, the text says that he spread out. That's how the Hebrew reads it. 
to a certain Adulamite named Khira. Adulam is another word that is difficult to parse out because there just aren't enough occurrences of it in the Hebrew Bible to pin down its exact meaning. But that same root in Arabic has the connotation of turning aside, which makes sense contextually. He's turning aside from the family and getting into trouble outside the bounds of the family tribe. Khira means to turn pale, which is ominous and already calls to mind a corpse. In fact, the only other occurrence of this word in the Bible parallels this passage nicely. It comes from Isaiah 29:22, which reads, Therefore, says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. Close quote. So we are seeing how this seemingly random insertion of Judah's escapades within the pericope of Joseph is functioning in the text. With Joseph, we have someone who is forced out of the family, but will be rescued by God. With Judah, we see somebody who abandons the family by choice and thus will be punished by God. It's this classic dichotomy in scripture where it hyperbolically compares opposites to make a point. This isn't just random. We just have to pay attention. We are told next that he sees the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua and has a son with her. Whether or not Shua refers to the Canaanite man or the daughter is unclear here, but verse 12 specifies that Shua refers to the Canaanite. But Shua means cry in Hebrew, as in a cry for help. It's also similar in form, and especially sound, to Yasha, which appears in scripture in the form of Hoshea and Yahoshua. Hoshea means salvation or deliverance, and Yahoshua means Yahweh saves. But this first name, Shua, is obviously more negative, and that is compounded by the fact that we don't hear explicitly in this passage about Judah taking this woman as a wife, but later on in verse 12, she is referred to as his wife. The word used here is lakach, which means to take, but does seem to be shorthand for to take a wife in other parts of scripture. But I think it is purposefully vague. The earliest occurrence of the word lakach are attributed to God. For instance, God lakach the rib out of Adam to form his wife. God lakach the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And on the flip side, Lamech lakach two women for himself. So the connotation when applied to human beings is usually a negative sign. Not to mention Judah is finding a mate on his own accord. Again, it would be more customary for the family patriarch, Jacob, to be arranging these relationships. We have to remember the cultural context, especially here, because we are so divorced from it in our modern world. Nowadays, we find spouses usually on our own, and the choice to get married is totally within the decision of the two getting married. In the ancient world, though, it was arranged by the paternal forces. Judah is going against the grain here, but he's acting like a wandering sheep away from the rest of the flock. Right, and that first son of theirs, Er, is named by Judah, and we don't have much to say on this, but it is interesting to note that of the three sons he has with the daughter of Shua, the first one is named by Judah, and the other two are named by his wife, who herself doesn't actually have a name. But the first son, Er, uh, is from a word that means one who is roused up or stirred up, or from the city because it is from the same root that gives us one of the Hebrew words, ear, for city. This is extremely telling. We know the Canaanites to be more of the tribal indigenous variety of human society, 
And the family of Israel, the family called out of the city, is called to live like the Canaanites in the wilderness. However, instead of shedding the baggage of the city, they take it with them. As Blaise said, Judah takes this woman for himself in the same fashion that Lamech, the first king, took two wives for himself. And he has a son, essentially named City. This short pericope of Judah and Shua is almost a miniature abstract portrait of the birth of the city in general. What do you get when a man takes a woman for himself despite her cries of affliction? The city. The next son is Onan, which comes from the word On, which means wealth or vigor. So the connotation would be the rich one or the vigorous one. And finally, the next son is Shelah, which interestingly comes from the same root Sha'al, which is where Sha'ul comes from, and therefore refers to a request or something that is asked for. The text then tells us that Jacob was in Chazib. This word is very evocative because it means to lie, as in to tell a lie. In fact, this word carries over identically, as it appears in Hebrew, to her sister languages, Aramaic and Arabic. So with all of that in mind, the scriptural authors are painting quite an ominous picture as we delve into Judah's line of succession. Yeah, and on a somewhat separate note, one growing scholarly explanation for the compilation of the Old Testament texts, if they were compiled, that is, is one which asserts the idea that Judah and Israel as kingdoms were completely separate at some point in history with different origin slash patriarchal myths, and the efforts of the scriptural corpus as we know it, at least the Old Testament, is centered around harmonizing the histories of these two separate nations, uh, because perhaps they came together at some point in history after being separate. I'm not completely sold on the theory, but even if this theory were true, and let's say for the sake of argument that this perspective does indeed deliver some level of truth, This separate pericope of Judah's dealings with the Canaanites and the scriptural author's use of the Hebrew language to paint a specific mood and atmosphere surrounding all of this is delegitimizing any Judahite claim to godly status or national superiority over other peoples. Jacob, or Israel, already got that same treatment, so it only makes sense that the other primary kingdom of the later stories of scripture, Judah, also gets that treatment as to prevent us from elevating one over the other. Again, the text does not allow us to have heroes. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So in contrast to Judah, here the text explicitly says that he took a wife for a son. The wife's name is Tamar, which refers to a palm tree. The text then goes on to say that Er was wicked in the sight of God, and God killed him. It doesn't say what Er did, so it doesn't matter. 
he was wicked, and therefore God removed him, much like how God will remove the Canaanites because of their wickedness and allow the Israelites to inhabit that land. When the Israelites will prove to be wicked themselves, they will also be exiled from the land. The text emphasizes the place of Er as the Bakar, the opener of the womb, or in other words, the firstborn. Although he was the firstborn, if he acts wickedly, he will be supplanted by his younger brothers. We see this exact formula in several narratives throughout Scripture and even in this own chapter. Yeah, I think it's extremely telling when you consider again that Er is a grammatical form of the word which refers outright to the city. The city is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. If anyone doesn't agree with the notion that the Bible itself is anti-city, anti-capital, anti-settlement, etc., point them right here. Er is not a fleshed-out protagonist or antagonist. He is a literary character, a literary symbol, intrinsically connected to the concept of the city via the language of the text and the choice word given to him as a name. Judah behaved like a maniacal king, controlling women like prostitutes, ushering in a new era for city culture in his firstborn heir, the city, trying to make a name for himself, uh, all according to Judah, his own agency. And God wasn't having any of it. It's almost like a what-if retelling of Jacob's story. The things Jacob did in Mesopotamia were cut from the same cloth as Judah's behavior here, but Jacob had a long-winded story of change in behavior, even if he wasn't perfect, he changed and listened to God by the end. But here in this story, Judah's son is outright killed by God for his wickedness. Imagine if this had happened to Jacob's firstborn. Well, it didn't. So again, that should say something as to how bad this situation must be in Judah's house. Next, Onan is commanded by his father to take Tamar as his own wife so that she will bear progeny. To die as a virgin, which in the Semitic thought means to be without progeny, was a mark of shame in the ancient world. The importance of this is reflected in Deuteronomy 5, 5 through 10, where it is permissible for a man to marry his brother's wife if he died before a child was conceived or born. This would ensure that the seed would continue. Onan marries Tamar, but he refuses to give her offspring because he knows that he is only giving offspring for his deceased brother, because culturally this child would not be his. He quote-unquote wastes the seed, the zerah in Hebrew. So due to his unwillingness to continue Judah's line, especially in that it is out of pride, God kills Onan as well. Judah, reserving Shelah, is interesting because on the one hand, the text makes it seem like he's too young to bear children. He says to Tamar to wait until Shelah grows up. In Hebrew, the word is gadal, which means to be big, as in stature. On the other hand, though, Judah is afraid that Shelah will suffer the same fate as his brothers and make a similar error. Perhaps Judah is more concerned about Shelah's maturity. But whatever the reason, Tamar is forced to go on childless, which again is a mark of shame. She's been through two men already, and neither one of them has given her progeny. She is still, functionally, in the eyes of the Semitic world, a virgin. Her womb has not yet been opened by a bakar. We will see, as we continue in the text, how this influences her behavior going forward. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. 
And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnath to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Inaim, which is on the road to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So here we have an interesting turn of events where Judah goes on to a place called Timnah, which comes from the word mana, meaning to count. I won't speculate too much on this, but it seems as if it could be a humorous insertion by the authors to ironically make fun of how many husbands Tamar has had. Remember that a great child of promise was named He Laughed, that being Isaac. This genealogical line is a joke, and it's going to be anything but pure as we continue. The text then tells us that Shelah is now a grown man, but Judah still refuses to give Tamar to him as a wife. It's clear that Judah is afraid of losing his remaining son, so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She pretends to be a prostitute, but the Hebrew is really interesting. The word here is kadeshah, which is the feminine form of kadesh, meaning holy. So literally, it means holy woman. Now, obviously, in our English-speaking minds, that sounds like it would be quite the opposite. But if we know our Semitic languages, even a little bit, there are parallels to this in Arabic. The most straightforward parallel is the word haram, which basically just means taboo, meaning it is something reserved for a special purpose, namely to God in the context of religion. On the one hand, haram refers to things that are forbidden, such as pork in Islamic dietary law. But the most holy mosque in Mecca is called Masjid al-Haram in Arabic, literally the haram or taboo mosque. It's a mark of holiness in that it belongs to God and is sacred. A similar sense can be placed on the word Kadesh in Hebrew. It is taboo because it is outside the bounds of what is acceptable in common usage. It has to be used in a specific manner under specific guidelines. What makes it even worse is that this particular word has the connotation of ritual prostitution, as was practiced by the pagans. So what Tamar is doing is haram in the utmost way. This couldn't be any more scandalous. The story is taking place at Enaim, literally the eyes. So this doubles down on the ultimately haram and pagan behavior. Ancient religions were far more focused on the visual sensations. Idolon, where we get the word idol, literally means that which is seen in Greek. The word kadisha, which in the ESV is rendered as temple prostitute here, is also used to describe the harlotry of Israel and Judah in the prophets. So this happens later on in the story. To top it all off, she demands in exchange for sex that he give her his signet, his cord, and his staff. These are all three things that a shepherd would have, especially the staff. So he forfeits his role as a shepherd and falls into harlotry with this Kadisha, who actually is his daughter-in-law. 
Wow, what a mess. But that's just what happens with Judah's descendant, David. David was a shepherd in his youth, but became a king in his old age and committed adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Again, we see this time and time again in the Bible. These stories get repeated ad nauseum, but with different characters from different angles. Genesis is our chance to hear all of these stories the first time so that they appear in the forms later in this extremely voluminous story in a way that we know makes sense from the context and we know where it came from. It all goes back to Genesis. Yeah, very well said. Everything I need to know I learned in Genesis, right? Another interesting detail in the Hebrew I want to point out stems from last week's talk where we highlighted the irony of the Hebrew roe, ra'ah, or sometimes just ra. Depending on context, the word can refer to the shepherd or the adversarial slash evil actions committed by someone in a story. In verse 12, in this chapter, it says Judah went up to Timnah to his friend, Chirah the Adulamite. We continue to have this repetition of Roe here after being introduced to the concept in the previous chapter, so we must consider the literary doublespeak going on. The text is being funny once again. We already heard of this character, Chirah the Adulamite, but again, let's remember the proposed meanings of these identifiers and what they mean in the story. Hira likely comes from a root meaning to grow or become white or pale, and Adulam likely comes from an ancient Semitic root meaning to turn aside, retreat, or take refuge. At the beginning of the chapter, the word Hira was likely a reference to the coming deaths of Judah's first two sons, and the word Adulam was probably, you know, very obviously, I think, a reference to Judah's fleeing or retreating from his family, like Blaze pointed out. And that's what Judah is doing again here. Instead of doing what he is supposed to do and take care of Tamar and give her her right as a mother, he runs away to meet his roe, his friend, or perhaps his adversity, if we consider the coming events. Speaking of, I can certainly imagine that the coming events would cause Judah to grow pale out of shock for what he has committed. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she was pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Most of this is self-explanatory, but I want to double down on the end of the passage where Judah sees his error and realizes that Tamar acted as she did because he deliberately withheld Shelah from her. This realization, as well as the fact that Tamar now has progeny through Judah, is where Judah ends this story without being killed by God. God punished Onan 
specifically because he refused to continue the progeny. Now, even though it has been convoluted and anything but pure and wholesome, the progeny continues. And when we see the genealogy list throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is clear that this line only gets more convoluted and less and less pure. But the important part is the progeny and the fact that it's still there. As long as the seed of God's promise is actively moving through the generations, it doesn't matter what the people do. That is how the scriptural God operates. We can't read into this story the type of sexual ethics we're inclined to read into it based on the sexual ethics of our various church traditions. The Bible is much less concerned with sexual ethics as it is in the seed itself. Any act that hinders the reproduction of the seed is abominable to God because the Torah spreads through the reproduction of the seed and successive generations. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore this one was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This last section is interesting because Perez comes out first and breaches his brother Zerah, and this is another piece of this overarching theme with the younger brother overtaking the older brother. Zerah comes out first, or at least appears to, but Perez eventually comes out on top. This is classic in scripture. Right, and as the previous section stated, Judah recognized that Tamar was more righteous than himself. He is ultimately the one in the wrong overall, but in this fleeting moment of acceptance where he confesses his wrongdoing, there might be a glimmer of hope, but the stamp of discomfort is placed on it yet again, as the Bible tends to do. Yes, our characters who commit wicked actions learn from their mistakes quite often and perhaps are better for it, but sin is a sickness, and sickness spreads. If I get COVID out of reckless or lazy decision-making or living, but I am otherwise young and healthy, I might get better and act more carefully the next time I'm in highly contaminated areas for my own sake, because I don't want to get sick again. But in the process of all of that, how many people did I inadvertently kill because I wasn't careful to avoid the disease in the first place. How many people suffered the illness by my hand and faced much harsher consequences? That's what's going on here. The hope is that Judah learned from his mistake and can shed the illness that is sin, but he has spread that very illness to his offspring Perez and Zerah, as in their newborn infancy, their very first relationship with another human being is already riddled with controversy. How much more clear could it be? And with that said, we end this crazy story about Judah here with the birth of Perez and Zerah. I hope by now we can see the function. Where Joseph was forced out of the family tribe, Judah leaves the family by choice and attempts to start his own tribal lineage with disastrous results. We see by the end that while he recognizes very late that he made the wrong decisions, this whole business was a complete disaster and led to the deaths of two of his sons and ended with him carrying on his progeny through iniquity. This will then be compared with Joseph as we continue in his story next week as he begins to flourish in the land of bondage where he was meant to die and be forgotten about. 
and it will be through his suffering inflicted by his brothers that he will eventually save those same brothers, the sons of Israel, by his own mercy and forgiveness. Until next time, God bless you all, and have a happy new year. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.